www.thevoiceamerica.org. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If anyone has earned the right to vote in an American election, it would be American soldiers fighting for their country. That might seem obvious, but it wasn't in 1861 when the country went to war against itself. Union soldiers did get to vote in 1864, but the familiar story that they overwhelmingly supported Lincoln, well, there's a question there too. Both of these questions raised by Professor Jonathan White in Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln. We'll talk with Professor White tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building in Camp B of the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, having moved down the hall from Camp A, our site for the last eight years. Now I'm in Office A320, if you're looking for me in the building sometime, and enjoying the uh, beautiful spring weather here on campus at East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or anybody else, just myself. I know my guest will do the same as always. Well, 
This is the 12th season of Civil War Talk Radio, and it's been a pleasure to get a number of welcome back emails and messages uh, on our Facebook, Impediments of War Facebook page or other places. I'm happy to be back to those who've written. I apologize if I'm slow in answering your emails. I will try to get to them, uh, but it's, it's good to hear from you. It is good to be back in football season. The East Carolina Pirates won their first game last week, but my alma mater, Michigan, did not uh, in the first game of the new Jim Harbaugh era. My college uh, buddy writes to me that he listened to the show last week, and his only suggestion is I should alter the the time allotment, perhaps 50% of the time talk with you about Michigan football and the other 50% about this Civil War thing, as he refers to it. Uh, it's a tempting idea, but I do get a certain amount of email from Buckeye fans uh, who share our common interest in the Civil War, and I don't want to lose them by talking uh, about the blue the whole time. So we'll keep it back on the Civil War. Uh, but we can also talk a little bit about contemporary events here on campus. One of the this is the first year I've not had the administrative task of department chair uh, since, I don't know, 2007. And it's really nice having uh, more control over my time. I've got time to work on some other projects, one of which is the idea of building a history museum, or at least a history room on campus, which I'm quite excited by and glad to be working on. It's fun to be back in the saddle actually doing some public history work but it's one of those things where uh, I'm working with some of my colleagues on content and then uh, Thursday of last week get a call from the upper administration saying we decided we need a timeline and a budget for this project in addition to the content you're preparing and I think well that makes sense Uh, surely you've been working on that they say we'd like you to provide it I say okay and they say and you have till tomorrow so I produced a one-day budget and timeline. It's worth every minute that I put into it, I'm afraid. But that is actually how museums get built. That is how a lot of projects happen. Like law and sausages, you don't want to see them being made if you want to maintain your respect for them. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of public history is the same way. But it doesn't mean it doesn't come out uh, tasty like a sausage when it's done. Uh, hopefully this will be that way. Well, coming up on the show in days ahead, we will have a series of interesting guests and uh, works of theirs to talk about. Next week, uh, the 16th, Kenneth A. Griffiths has written a book called Seven Days in July, A Historic Account of the Battle of Atlanta. It's different from most uh, history books, and we'll talk about it next week and see how. After that, we've got... uh, Daniel T. Davis, who's the co-author of Bloody Autumn, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 1864, as well as uh, a book on the uh, Bentonville Campaign that we talked about last season with his co-author. So this time we'll talk with him about uh, the Shenandoah Valley Campaign of 64. On September 30th, Matthew Gallman, uh, Defining Duty in the Civil War, 
personal choice, popular culture, and the union home front. I've intended to have Professor Coleman on for a long time, and glad we finally got that arranged. On October 7th, public history rears its head. Uh, Betty Brennan, the uh, president or director or owner or czar, commander-in-chief of Taylor Studios, uh, in Illinois, a firm that's worked on a number of Civil War-related exhibits around the country. We'll be talking about what I mentioned earlier, the sausage-making behind the scenes of a Civil War-related uh, history exhibit. And then on October 14th, Thomas Hurd Robertson, Jr. has edited a Confederate Surgeon's Journal. The title is Resisting Sherman. Uh, subtitle includes Civil War in the Carolinas, 1865, and we'll talk about that campaign with Mr. Robertson. You can follow this, as always, at impedimentsofwar.org. You can go to the Impediments of War Facebook page. You can uh, go back to the website, impedimentsofwar.org, and there is a PayPal button upon which you can click, even if you don't have a PayPal account. There's some magical way they can figure out where your money is and take it from you in whatever quantity you name and give it to me uh, for my personal use and for nothing else. Uh, it's not a charitable contribution. It is theoretically to be used to buy the books you just heard me describe. And indeed, some of it goes there, but some of it just goes in my desk drawer. Uh, so it's a, it's a contribution to keep the show happy. And some of it actually does go to, uh, now and then to defray some of the website costs. So we uh, appreciate that. We, being Mark Gaffney and myself, he's the person who keeps impedimentsofwar.org running smoothly. So thanks to all who have contributed in the past, and uh, those are very, very welcome uh, to the show. Well, tonight's show brings us a uh, an, an interesting uh, that's too mild a word, a uh, paradigm-shattering book, Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln. The author is Jonathan W. White. Uh, Professor White, are you there? I am, yes. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. D delighted to do that. Uh, we've corresponded a little bit. You signed your name, John. Is, is John okay, or are you officially John Jonathan? Okay. Call I spell me it out place. in my as an author so that it doesn't get misspelled with an H. But you know, John is fine. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I spell out Gerald on my books, even though the only person who calls me that is my mother, uh, the mm -hmm. number one fan of Civil War talk radio. Uh, everyone in person calls me Jerry, so uh, so I'm with you there. Uh, so, John, tell. Tell me a little bit about uh, your day job, uh, uh, where you do Civil War history when you're not writing. Sure. I teach at Christopher Newport University, which is a small state school in southeastern Virginia in the historic triangle near Williamsburg and Yorktown and Jamestown. And we have about 5,000 students, and I teach American studies, so most of my courses are actually things related to the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and I teach a course on treason in America. Hmm. So I don't how actually did, get to teach the Civil War course here. Ah, how did you uh, come by that? I'm just curious because we're in such a, a horrible market for uh, for historian teaching jobs. Uh, what, what was your story? 
I actually I met several CNU professors at a conference back in maybe around 2006 when I was in graduate school, and I think that that helped me get a foot in the door so that when I applied a few years later, they at least recognized my name. That was a little bit of luck, I think. Uh, that that's good to hear. Where hopefully it's with all of us. Did uh, is the Civil War a topic that has always interested you, or how did you come by it and to, that would bring you to write a book like this? Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in a house from the 1720s in southeastern Pennsylvania, and when I was a kid, I found the old trash pit in the backyard, and so I would dig up all sorts of things from the 19th century. And I think that was where I first began to really fall in love with history. And I remember being in high school thinking I would love to be a history teacher if only it paid you know, a good salary. And so I started college at Penn State. So you forgot us as a rival in your opening there. But I started my uh, undergrad at Penn State as a business major. And I took one of those large seminar classes, U.S. History at 1865. I just fell in love with it. I switched to history and never looked back. Uh, that's a heartwarming story. We try to do that with our intro uh, history students. I'm always trying to yeah. recruit one or two to, to come over to the dark side or the penurious side of, of uh, right. history instead of business. So Penn State uh, brings up the name of Mark Neely, to whom you have uh, dedicated this book. Um, Mark was my predecessor at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right. and I got to meet him. Uh, he... All he did was win the Pulitzer Prize there and then move on to uh, other places, ending up at Penn State, uh, truly one of the, the greats of the, the 20th century. How did you beat up with Mark? So when I was a freshman, Gary Gallagher was at Penn State, and he left after my freshman year, and then they brought in Bill Blair and Mark Neely. And I, I think I was a sophomore or a junior, and I took Mark's um, constitutional history course and I'd never studied the Constitution, never read the Federalist Papers before, but I, I fell in love with the subject, and after many classes, he and I would walk back to his office and talk for hours about all sorts of things. And in, my, in the fall semester of my senior year, I was auditing his Civil War class. I'd already taken it with Bill Blair. So I couldn't get credit for it, but I would just go and sit and learn. And after class again, we would often go back to his office to talk. And I asked him if he would do an independent study with me, and he said, sure, that would be great. And so he asked me what I wanted to write about, and I, I put a topic forward, and he said, no, that, that wouldn't really be a good topic. So he said, come back in a week, and, and we'll figure something out. And so I came back a week later, and he had a list of three topics that he knew were worth writing about, and that he also knew I would be able to do research on in the middle of nowhere in central Pennsylvania. And one of them was the election of 1864 and how soldiers voted in that election. The only, the last book, the only book on the subject had been written by a Union veteran and published in 1915. So he knew it was a topic that was ripe for someone to dig into. And what I didn't know at the time was he was planning to include a chapter on it in his book, The Union Divided, which he published in 2002. Um, but instead, he very graciously gave the topic to me. I did it as a seminar paper for him. And then I expanded it into my master's thesis at the University of Maryland. And then I finally came back to it a few years ago and turned it into a book. Wow. Well, that, that's, that's a great story of how a mentor can really shape, uh, uh, you know, shape a person's career and, and, and life, indeed. And Mark is certainly yeah. uh, a good person for doing that. 
when you mentioned there were no other books on this topic, the the election of 1864 certainly has books. David Long's book comes to mind, mm-hmm. um, but that's not specifically about the soldier vote. Uh, right. So you're there saying- are several books on the election itself, but the the thing that's surprising is, you know, I think this is probably the most important presidential election in American history, and yet there are very few books on it. You can count them on one hand, I think, and it goes to show that most people just assume the story is fairly straightforward. And um, obviously I take a little bit of a contrarian view on that. But. Yeah, but uh, David, uh, David Long, you told me he had the same encounter when he was proposing it as a dissertation topic that mm-hmm. uh, some of the professors were saying, well, what, you know, what, it's not that important. And uh, his, his view in the book is, is the same as yours. It's one of the, if not the most important election in American history. And he makes a, a good case for it. Uh, right. It, but he and most other writers, as, as you point out in your book, uh, do treat the soldier vote, uh, I don't want to say they, they take it for granted or imply the Republicans took it for granted, but they certainly portray it as, if not monolithic, overwhelmingly uh, in support of Abraham Lincoln. And I think right. I've written that myself in, in places. That's uh, not your view. And and uh, we're going to talk about that the rest of the evening. We've got just a minute or so before the break. But uh, shorthand version, did the soldiers not vote in, in 75, 80% in favor of Lincoln in 1864? Right. So they voted 80% for Lincoln. And what I try to get at in the book is what that 80% meant. And I think for most of the scholars who've looked at the soldier vote, they see it not only as support for Lincoln, but support for emancipation. And I think the story is more complicated than that. Um, and I also think the 80% number is um, mischaracterizes what exactly happened in the election. I, in, go um, ahead. Well, I was going to say, I don't know when if we get a hard break, but... Um, one of the things I try to do in the book is look at voter turnout and then also look at the elections leading up to the presidential election. What today we would consider, uh, well, they're state and local elections. We almost would consider them off-year elections because they don't happen on the same day as the presidential election. And I looked at how soldiers voted in September and October and even in November of 64 for state and local um, officials, and they're not nearly as supportive of the Republican Party in those elections as they are in the presidential election of 64. And I think that that shows that they didn't have as much of a connection to the party and to emancipation as most scholars believe they did. Well, I think that gets us to the the crux of the argument, the, the question about emancipation. And we will take a short break now. We'll come back and talk more about what the soldiers were really thinking in November 1864 with our guest, Jonathan White, author of Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jonathan White, author of Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln. This book argues that the traditional view most Civil War scholars portray of the 1864 election that Union soldiers supported Lincoln, supported the Union government, and supported the war aims, including uh, uh, emancipation. And uh, uh, some authors take it a step further and say, and uh, adopted those views for the rest of their lives, became lifelong Republicans as a result of this experience. You say no to all that. Uh, what, what's I don't the say no to quite all of that. The one okay. exception I would make is that I do see these soldiers as fighting for the Union. Mm-hmm. And so for them, a number of these guys, they enlist in 1861 or 1862, and they say, I'm willing to fight for the Union. I believe in the Union. I believe in the Constitution. But then the war changes in 1863 from their perspective. Now it's no longer just about Union but it becomes about emancipation as well. And there's no doubt about it that that many soldiers convert to becoming um, emancipationists among the Union soldiers. But I think that scholars have overemphasized that amount of the soldiery. And I think that there still were a lot of soldiers who saw themselves as primarily fighting for the Union. And among that group, um, you know, Looking, one of the things I try to do in the book is look at reenlistments and mm-hmm. uh, figure out how many soldiers reenlisted. And this is a disputed number. Joseph Ladar puts estimates about 6.5 percent of soldiers reenlisted in '63 and '64. Jim McPherson puts that number at about 50 percent. There's a big gap there. I think the mm-hmm. number is around 15 percent. And when thinking about reenlistments, um, what I see happening is there are a lot of soldiers who, again, were willing to fight for the Union, 
but they're not willing to fight in a war for emancipation. And when the opportunity comes to say their time is up, they choose to do that rather than um, re-up for another three years or duration of the war. Now, of course, there could be many other reasons not to do sure, that. absolutely. But I think this is one of, of many, but one that hasn't been considered as seriously by scholars. Let me take a step back and ask a question I, I, that I referred to in the opening, uh, in the introduction, the question of soldiers voting at all. Uh, yeah. The picture that you portray is one of uh, just, just craven partisanship on both sides throughout the war. If they think the soldiers are going to support their party, then by golly, these patriotic boys risking their lives deserve to vote. And if they don't think so, then it's unfair to give the ballot to these people who are controlled by officers and who aren't allowed to know what the facts are, or read newspapers, and they'll just right. be forced to vote. Uh, but they, they trade that coat back and forth, depending which way they think the vote's going to go. That's right. Is it, is, is, was it really that cynical? <laughs> That's a good question. Um well, you see these arguments being made by politicians nationwide. Every state that debates these, this issue of whether or not to permit soldiers to vote, you see Republicans... Well, at the beginning of the war, Republicans are not terribly supportive of the right for soldiers right. to vote. And it's only after they lose the elections of 1862 that they become the champions of the soldiers' right to vote. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is there's a lot of... You use the right word, craven. There's a lot of base partisanship in in this debate. And uh, some scholars have gotten at this before. I mean, Frank Clement wrote an article about Wisconsin soldiers where I think he recognized the partisan motiv uh, motivation going on with the politicians. But I think others have just sort of taken it at face value. Well, the Republicans championed the right of soldiers to vote. It was the right thing to do. Obviously, people who are fighting and dying on the battlefield deserve the right to exercise the privileges of citizenship. But if you look at the Republicans' record prior to 62, they're not really adopting that position. And prior to 62, you have Democrats introducing legislation to give soldiers the right to vote. What's really fascinating, I think, there were a few very minor antebellum examples of soldiers voting. The uh, two states had permitted soldiers to vote during the War of 1812, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And New Jersey repealed its law before the end of that decade. Pennsylvania's law stayed on the books, and in 1861, Pennsylvania soldiers voted, and there were incredible amounts of fraud. And so a number of cases went to the, the state court system in Pennsylvania, and the, the, the soldier voting law was eventually struck down because they said there's so much fraud. I found one regiment from Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia, where there was a 900-vote majority for the Republican candidate in 1861, even though there weren't 900 voters from Philadelphia in that regiment. And so clearly there was fraud, and people looked at this and they said, you know, that no Republicans protested in the newspapers, we've got to give soldiers the right to vote. And level-headed people of both parties at, at that time said, it doesn't seem like we can really monitor the ballot box if we take it to the field. Um, so I, I do think it, it's really a partisan motivation that leads to in uh, enacting soldier suffrage laws. I, now, I think they're good laws in that I do think that people dying on the battlefield or suffering on the battlefield deserve the right to vote. Um, but there were some, there was some legitimacy to the fears that Democrats voiced um, 
once they started voicing them, whether they were sincere or just partisan is another issue, I suppose. Well, the, uh, I mean, partisanship is, is what, you know, is, is on every page of this book. It's a political mm-hmm. book about politics, so, so that makes sense. Um, one of the problems with having soldiers vote that you, you highlight is the risk of intimidation uh, or coercion or punishment uh, if you vote contrary to the administration, Right, and, and and you cite a lot of examples of that. Yeah, and I, I keep finding more. It's funny, you publish a book and you, you start saving things for the second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, so I, I started this, I started really digging into the question of intimidation when I was working on my dissertation, and my dissertation was on treason in the North during the Civil War. And I got a list of court-martial cases at the National Archives that, related to treason, and I was shocked to find soldiers who were accused of treason and who were court-martialed for treason. And as I began to look into those cases and find more and more, I found that these were guys who um, were court-martialed for speaking out against the administration or for criticizing the emancipation policy of the administration. And some of these cases, and these aren't all treason cases, they get charged with other things as well, but some of them are as simple as distributing Democratic newspapers in camp or saying, uh, you know, wanting Democratic ballots in camp. People get court-martialed for getting angry when they can't find Democratic ballots and and saying in colorful language that they're upset about it. And as I began to find those uh, pieces of evidence, I then began to look more for other forms of intimidation. And it was, it's really incredible the things you find because people on both sides of the aisle are very candid about the intimidation. The people who are intimidated are writing home about how upset they are about it, and the people doing it are writing home telling their families about it. One of the things, and and there's other examples as well, one of the things I found after I published the book was a diary entry from Lincoln's private secretary, John Hay, where he describes Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, coming into the White House and and talking about a guy who who said he was going to bet money against the Republican candidate for governor in um, Indiana that year, that election in October. And Stanton says something along the lines of, I reduced him in ranks and sent him to the front. And Stanton had no qualms with with almost boasting, essentially boasting about that. Um, I found private soldiers who also, in their correspondence home, write about intimidating um, people who were, you know, peddling Democratic ballots in the field. So they're very open about it. And, and I be, as I began to look for it systematically, I began to be surprised by how much I found. Well, that brings up an interesting question because as I was reading this, I was thinking, I, I was wondering that very question if when you look for something in the historical record, it's often the case you can find it. There's mm-hmm. such a lot of it here and and it's so compelling that it's not as if you're just cherry picking a few weird examples. That's obvious. But uh, I was thinking back to my own research in the Army of the Ohio and officers like uh, Lovell Rousseau or Malin Manson who were outspoken Democrats and gave speeches claiming we wage no abolition crusade. They're telling the people of Kentucky we're not uh, slave stealers. We're, We're not abolitionists and they're very open they give speeches about this and right. they end up commanding divisions and corps and they don't get punished 
Um, so is there a risk that in looking for someone who says anti-abolitionist stuff and gets punished, uh, that there might be a lot of other examples of those who say that and nothing happens to them? Sure. No, I'm sure there are instances like like the ones you just gave. Um, what I argue in the book is that in the moments where people are punished, the Lincoln mm-hmm. administration is doing something um, calculating, you might say, where they're trying to teach other soldiers not to speak in these ways. And so, yeah, absolutely, I don't think every soldier who spoke out against emancipation was punished for it. But the ones who were were often punished in very public ways. And I think that that was the way that the administration tried to show other soldiers this this could be the consequence of speaking out against emancipation or of writing op-eds, letters to the you know letters to the newspapers back home, criticizing the war policy of the administration. And I think it did. I don't know for the examples you gave. I don't know what point in the war they were. If they were in early sixty, they, they were early on for the, the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know. There's going to be, you're right, there's going to be examples on all sides. Um, but the way that the administration went about it, I think, was very pointed in terms of trying to make the point to the vast majority of soldiers. And, and I well, think it was effective, largely. I give some examples in the book where I find soldiers writing their diaries about their comrades from the brigade who were mm-hmm. punished for saying things against emancipation. So clearly they were learning this lesson. Well, you give the example that a lot of listeners will be familiar with, Major Key, John mm-hmm. Key, who uh, you know, early in the war is very open, is is heard to say that the game is not to beat the rebels, it's to you know stall as long as possible, right. get a compromise peace, and preserve slavery. And Lincoln hears about this and says, did you say that? And he says, yes. And Lincoln has him you know, cashiered and right. then makes it very public, as you point out, to, to make the point. But there... The, his sentiments are not those of, of uh, a partisan poli- politician saying, I want the other guy to win. Right. He's saying, I want my country to lose this war. That's right, uh, yeah. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that a lot of these guys really do earn their punishments. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if some of these guys are so angry about emancipation that they say they want to shoot the president. And you just can't talk that way if you're a soldier. It violates the fifth article of war. So... If they speak that way, they clearly merit punishment. Um, but those are a part of the men who were punished. You, a vast whole number of them are people who don't speak in that way, but mm-hmm. resign their commissions, officers who resign and say, I'm not willing to fight in this abolition war. And, and they get punished publicly, for not for making a disloyal statement like I think Key made, um, mm-hmm. but for a more partisan or political statement. Well, that that fine line runs throughout every every sentence in the book. Practically, mm-hmm. the difference between legitimate political opposition, exercising your right as an American citizen to express your political views, and the soldier's duty to obey the right. commander in chief in the the chain of command, who is the military commander as well as the political chief executive. Uh, Lincoln sits in both of those offices, so criticizing him as political leader and disobeying him or or subverting him as military commander are are impossible to disentangle. And and so these cases are fascinating that you keep citing that uh, 
where people are punished and half the time you think, oh, that guy got what he deserved. And other times right. I'm reading thinking, oh, that's terrible that they did that to him. Uh, right. It's, it's a great conflict. And what's difficult for the soldiers is these are guys who are used to being involved in politics at home. They're used to speaking their mind. They're volunteers. They're citizen soldiers. For many of them, they, they don't understand that there could be a distinction between criticizing the president's policies and threatening the president. I mean, they're used to, I think, if they get angry, they say something outlandish. Um, not so unlike politics today, if you read comments on <laughs> blogs and whatnot. Um, except when you're wearing the uniform, you are bound by the Articles of War. And um, it's interesting to read a lot of their defenses when they get court-martialed, because they try to make the claim I still possess the rights of a citizen. I still possess the right of free speech. Um, and they haven't quite made the connection that it's not as complete in the Army as it is if you're at home and we're not at war. It, they lose some of that under the Articles of War. They do. And, and yet, as, as these cases often show, it's not exactly clear, and, and a lot of it depends on the politics of the next person up the line. Mm-hmm. As I was reading this book, there were, there were times... It made me uncomfortable because it really does challenge uh, an established paradigm. In I, I, I try to teach my students not to be presentist, not to attempt to escape into the past where everything was clear and uh, morally certain. And in contrast to today's difficult choices, we can enjoy a visit to the 1860s where we know who the good guys and bad guys are. Uh, of course, things were just as confused then, but one of the paradigms of Civil War writing has been that Union soldiers were radicalized. They start the war racist like most white Americans of their era. They encounter the slaves. They they see what the war is about. They become uh, sympathetic to emancipation. Uh, you know, Barbara Gannon argues in the the, the one cause they right. have interracial GAR posts after the war uh, that that this is a moment, a transforming moment in American history. And here in your book, we have page after page of virulent racist uh, language in letters and diaries from Union loyal Union soldiers right. who are fighting for their country, but have no use for emancipation. Uh, and it's it it breaks the uh, the traditional pattern. So, I mean, you you call some people out, uh, Jennifer Weber, Chandra Manning, uh, uh, for interpretations that you don't think can be sustained. Right. I in Weber's case, and and I can be accused of the the thing that I say she does. Um, in Weber's case, she says that these soldiers became lifelong Republicans, and she doesn't look at the post-war period. And to be fair. I don't either. Um, mm-hmm. It would have it would have been unsustainable to try to uh, follow some of these guys um, to mm-hmm. the to the 1880s and 90s and so forth. Um, but I, I think that there is this narrative that soldiers became overwhelmingly Republican. They became emancipationists. And yet, one of the things I wish I had done in the book that I didn't do is. If these guys became so overwhelmingly emancipationist, I mean, Chandra Manning is arguing that these guys are emancipationists by 1861, and I just, I don't see it. Um, If these guys became so overwhelmingly emancipationist, why weren't they more supportive of black political rights um, during Reconstruction? I, you know, there is not, 
especially by 1877, there's not a lot of white support for uh, reconstruction policies that are going to protect rights for African Americans. And I think that if the soldiers had become as overwhelmingly emancipationist and as overwhelmingly Republican as the traditional narrative says they were, there would have been much more support in Reconstruction for radical Republican policies. But that makes support, a lot of I just sense. Don't think it's there. No, I, I think you're right. We don't see a lot of that. We're going to take another short break. Come back and talk more with our guest, Jonathan White, author of Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-election of Abraham Lincoln. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. We've been talking this evening with Jonathan White, author of Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, a fascinating book that reinvestigates the question of the soldiers voting during the Civil War on the Union side uh, and challenges the accepted view that they became uniformly Republican uh, by 1864, if not sooner. And, John, one of the things that that you distinguish very clearly about the soldiers' vote in the, the presidential election uh, is that a lot of the soldiers who are voting, who cast a vote for Lincoln, aren't so much for Lincoln as they are against uh, the other side. And the other side isn't George McCollin necessarily. Uh, right. can, could you talk so, about the Democrats? Sure. The Democrats had initially planned to hold their convention early in the summer of 64. I think it was around July 4th. And the thing that they realized was that the war was going really badly for the Union, 
during the summer of 64, you have the Overland Campaign where Grant is losing tens of thousands of men. And what they decided to do was postpone their convention to the end of August so that they could wait and see where the war was at that point. By the end of August, things were not much better. Grant was stalled outside of Petersburg. Sherman was stalled outside of Atlanta. And so when they nominate their ticket and they write their platform, they essentially tried to hedge on the ticket. They nominate George McClellan as a pro-war, pro-slavery Democrat. They nominate George Pendleton of Ohio as a peace Democrat uh, member of Congress. And that's going to be their ticket. They hope to appeal to a wide range of voters by having a peace peace candidate for vice president and a, a war candidate for president. But then their real fatal flaw is they write into their platform that the war is a failure. And the problem that they run into is a few days later, Sherman captures Atlanta. And that sends a thrill through the North, I think, where now the war doesn't seem like a failure anymore. But the Democrats have put themselves on record as calling the war a failure. What I think that does for the soldiers is, I think there were a lot of moderate soldiers, pro-war Democrats who were not emancipationists, but they were pro-union. And when they are put in that position of having to decide between Lincoln on the one hand and a party that calls their effort in the field a failure on the other hand, I think some of them grudgingly vote for Lincoln as the lesser of two evils. I think some Mm -hmm. of them choose not to vote. And I think some of them vote for McClellan because they still see him as a loyal candidate for president. But I found several soldiers, at least two, who who worry about what happens if McClellan dies in office. Then, Mm. you know, George Pendleton becomes president. And when, when faced with that situation, it becomes really hard for soldiers to vote for the Democratic Party. And so I think a lot of these guys chose to sit out the election rather than vote. But that doesn't mean they became lifelong Republicans, as I think a lot of scholars believe they did. So when we see that number, the 75 or 80 percent voting for Lincoln, those who are not voting, who are abstaining, may be uh, Democrats, pre-war Democrats who support the war, but they can't get themselves to to submit a ballot that has Pendleton on it or the the platform on it. Or the platform, right. And so I try to be very um, transparent in the book in terms of the methodology I used Mm -hmm. to figure out voter turnout. And I estimate that voter turnout was about 80% in the book. To be honest, I think voter turnout was lower, but I wanted to be as conservative in my estimate as I could. So as even though it goes a little bit against my argument, I wanted to, um, to be as transparent as I could. And so what I did was I, I found every regiment I could that had um, an election return. And mm-hmm. then I went to the National Archives and I took that list of regiments and then I found every regiment that I could find a morning report for election day so that I could know how many men were present. And then I used Sanitary Commission statistics to figure out, to estimate how many men would have been of voting age. And I applied the voting age percentage to um, the total number of votes, uh, to, to the eligible men who were there to figure out Mm -hmm. how many eligible voters there were. And then I compared that to the number of votes cast. And uh, the reason I think I was conservative in in terms of voter turnout, I ultimately found or estimate that 80% of the soldiers voted. And, uh, but I had some regiments where my estimated voter turnout was, you know, 110%. 
And clearly, you can't have 110% voter turnout unless it's Chicago in 1960, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I was, I was conservative in my estimates, and the voter turnout was probably lower than I estimate in the book. And what that means, again, is that there are more soldiers choosing not to vote than even I estimate in the book. I hope that so- made sense. Well, it does. I mean, what comes through in the, the letters and diaries and, and other evidence that you cite again and again is how loyal these soldiers are and how even with their deep racial antipathy to emancipation, they are not going to go against the war itself, against the Union right. itself. And they, you know, they, they often will say that the only person worse than an abolitionist is a peace democrat, a copperhead, right. uh, or the only person worse than a copperhead is an abolitionist, but the, they put both of them in the same category. They hate them both, and That's right. that leaves them no one to vote for, uh, so they, they don't vote or they they vote for Lincoln, and so we get this this outcome. Well, this as I was reading this book, I, it was... It reminded me of the reaction I had to uh, Lerone Bennett's book, Forced into Glory, some 15 years ago. I don't know Uh, how I feel about that comparison. Well, (laughs) now let let me clarify that. Uh, For those listeners who haven't read it, of course, uh, Lerone Bennett wrote a a book that was extremely critical of Abraham Lincoln. And what what Bennett did was take the, the standard Lincoln biography paradigm, which is every time Lincoln says something racially progressive, that's his true belief. And every time he says something uh, racially uh, uh, negative, that's him pandering to the racist attitudes of the voters of his time and being a realistic politician. And Bennett turns that upside down and just says, no, the, the latter are his true feelings and the progressive things are the window dressing. And it turns, it creates this bizarro upside down Lincoln who is remarkably consistent. I don't believe it's accurate. But right. what it did was make me question all these biographies that had reflexively taken Lincoln at his word whenever he said something good and then said, oh, look how clever he is whenever he said something bad. He's, mm-hmm. he's just being political. It makes you step back and go, well, Bennett may – I don't think Bennett's right that it's the other way, but he's on to something that we're too uh, accepting of the, the established interpretation here. And right. your book. I think does some of the same thing uh, without coming up with a bizarro upside down outcome as Bennett's <laughs> did. Uh, it does call into question the, the traditional narrative that Union soldiers became racial progressives during the war. And I, th- I think it's a valuable, if uncomfortable, book to read for that reason. Uh, I, I, I certainly got a lot out of it and, and would well, recommend you. it highly. Um, let me ask about another thing in in the book that you point out that I, again, was really unfamiliar with or unaware of, that many of the soldiers, that a law was passed, I should say, near the end of the war, mm-hmm. uh, declaring soldiers who had deserted as forfeiting their citizenship and being unable to vote. Right. That's And that has lots of long-range repercussions. Could you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, right at the end of... Um Lincoln's life, March 3rd, 65, he signs into law, a law that says that soldiers who desert and don't return to the army within a set period of time would forfeit their rights of citizenship. And it's this incredible law on a whole number of reasons. Now, one is, getting back to the partisanship, I think mm-hmm. the Republicans in Congress assumed that most of the deserters were Democrats. 
And so we're going to disenfranchise a whole host of our political enemies. But this law has really far-reaching implications. One is, no one up to that time has ever really defined what it means to be a U.S. citizen or what those rights are. And so here you have, for the first time, before the, the 14th Amendment, you have Congress essentially claiming the right to vote as um, a right of U.S. citizenship. And I think that's a really important moment. But what's really cool about this law, I think, and I know you were, I learned this from listening to the program last week, that you were a lawyer in a previous life. Um, mm-hmm. This law has a very long um, lifespan, and it's not struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court until 1957 in a case called Trop versus Dulles, where the Supreme Court essentially argues that disenfranchising deserters violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments. And now there's a dissent by Frankfurter, which is fascinating, where he says, ah, but is disenfranchisement really worse than the traditional punishment for deserters? Death. Um, and so there's this interesting interplay on the court. But this law lasts for a hundred years that comes out of the Civil War um, based on this notion, well, if soldiers deserve the right to vote, then deserters clearly don't. And it, it puts, uh, politically, it's a master stroke because it puts the Democrats who've been opposing the soldier vote uh, and who oppose this as well, uh, they can oppose each one on principled grounds. They can oppose this as federal overreach or other things. But they end up taking the position, we don't think soldiers should vote, but we do think deserters should vote. Right. Uh, right. So, so if you run away from battle, now you've got the right to vote again. It, it, it's a completely politically uh, yeah. impossible position for them to be in. Uh, it's very clever. But it does also, as you, you point out, has very long legs. Uh, and even in the immediate aftermath of the war, if deserters lose citizenship rights and citizenship includes the right to vote, then what about women? If mm-hmm. Are they not citizens? And if, if they are, then they get the right to vote. What about African Americans? It really That's opens right. up all kinds of things that must not have been considered at the time. That's right. And women are going to make that claim beginning in the late 1860s. They, after the 14th Amendment and then the 15th Amendment in 1870, they, they begin to claim, well, Clearly, voting is an inherent right of U.S. citizenship. And ultimately, the Supreme Court in, I think it was 1875, in a case called Minor versus Haversett, says, no, the 14th Amendment does not confer the right to vote to women. Um, but there's that short window where in the wake of these amendments and in the wake of this law, women around the country are claiming the right to vote because they, they're making the logical conclusion. They see the connection between citizenship and voting that Congress sees in 1865. And and Lincoln sees uh, well not not the link between military service and citizenship. That's uh, right. Which Lincoln others? Tra- uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say Lincoln makes that connection all the way. I think it was 1832 where he issues this little mm-hmm. handbill where he says, "I go for all you know having the right to vote who either bear arms or pay their taxes," and mm-hmm. then he adds in parentheses, "by no means accepting females." And uh, so Lincoln had made that connection 30 years before the war. Yeah, and 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 then again in his very last uh, speech when he talks about giving the, the the right to vote to uh, the black men who have served in our ranks. Uh, right. So again, the connection between military service and citizenship. Um, Chris Samito, who's going to be on the show later this season uh, for his next mm-hmm. book, uh, has has written about this how. 
Becoming Citizens Under Fire, I think was the title, about how both Irish as well as African Americans establish Mm -hmm. a claim to citizenship by serving in the Union Army. Uh, So this, your your book just raises all kinds of fascinating issues, the the, uh, and the epilogue where you point out that this law continues on well into the 20th century, and that even today, in the 21st century, there are still uh, technical or, or uh, you know, just implementation problems with right. people in the military voting. Yeah, as I was trying to figure out how to finish the book, I, I ended up deciding to pursue the soldier suffrage legislation and see what happened after the war. Most of these laws disappear. And then periodically during the Spanish-American War, during World War I, some states reenfranchise their soldiers. And it's not until World War II that FDR really pushes for legislation, again, because in this case he's afraid he, he'll lose in 1944 without the military vote. And then for the rest of the 20, you know, the, the voting in 1944, soldiers aren't able to vote in high numbers because of the mechanisms for getting the ballot to them in the field and then getting it back. And amazingly, the mechanisms still aren't that strong in terms of getting the ballots to soldiers and making sure they get back in time and making sure they get counted. Um, this is even an election in, or an issue in the presidential election of 2000 uh, with the soldiers voting in Florida. And so one of the things I sort of tease out at the end of the book is showing how the issues that they dealt with during the Civil War about how to make sure that the people sacrificing for the nation get the right to vote, I mean, that's still something... We're, we're grappling with as a nation today. Well, it's just one of one of many fascinating implications and, and outcomes from this book. Uh, listeners, you will uh, find it as fascinating as I did, I'm sure, Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln by Jonathan W. White. Uh, highly recommended on those counts. John, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.